Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Four of you. All right, let's go. Titus chapter 2 is where we find ourselves this morning again. So we're working through the New Testament letter of Titus in the month of May. There's three chapters in Titus. We plan to handle one chapter a Sunday. But if you were here last Sunday, you remember that we were in Titus chapter 2 last week and we looked at the doctrine and the truth of Titus 2. And this morning we're going to look at kind of zeroing in on how that applies to us as a congregation. So about 20 years ago, uh, when I was still in the army, I can't remember where we were living at the time, but Jennifer and I were part of this church where we started to get frustrated with it because it seemed like the pastor would spend the first 10 or 15 minutes of his sermon rehashing what he talked about last week. And I said, if I ever pastor church, I'm not going to be that guy. So here we are looking at the same text that we looked at last week, but we're not going to look at the same truths. We're going to do something unusual here for us at Crosspoint is we're going to zero in on this picture, <coughs> excuse me, this picture that we see, I think, in Titus 2 of this church in community with one another, striving to live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a broken world, commending the gospel to that world so that more people will trust in Christ. We're, we're going to look and zero in on what that looks like for us as Crosspoint. So if you have a Bible, open it to Titus chapter 2. As always, as we say, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the rack of the chair in front of you. Keep that Bible for yourself. You can see the page numbers. There's two different, ver- two different brands of the same version of Bible there, and you can find it on one of those page numbers of Titus 2. Keep that if you don't have a Bible. That's our gift to you. Read it, come back, and you'd be helped to follow along, along with me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read Titus 2, and then I'm going to read just a, a couple verses out of Colossians 1. You don't need to flip there. We'll have it on the screen. Then I'm going to pray, and we're going to start to pick apart and look at what it looks like for us as a church to be this culture of intentional, earnest followers of Jesus seeking to display that to the world or a culture of discipleship. So let me read again, Titus 2, starting in verse 1. Writing to this young pastor in this young church, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women... Likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may not be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. 
bondservants or slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Verse 11, some of the most important passages in the New Testament, this beautiful picture of the gospel. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now let me read Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29. Don't worry about flipping there unless you're just like super skilled, like you were the Bible sword drill champion in VBS when you were a kid. Let me just read Colossians 1, 28 and 29, which I think encapsulates this heartbeat of what we're wanting to do this morning. Paul writing, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he may that that he powerfully works within me. So here's this flow of thought that I want us to see, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start to peel back the, the layers of the onion here. This flow of thought is that Paul, in this letter to Titus and in Colossians, is saying to this young congregation, after in chapter one, where he said, Choose good men to be elders pastors, overseers of the flock who have a firm grasp on the Bible and the doctrine that flows out of it, then teach these things. And now you older men and older women, teach and train these younger men and younger women and live together as a sort of countercultural light against the backdrop of a dark culture and be a group of people that are striving and struggling to actually live out what you say you believe, and be a people that are zealous for a display of the gospel so that God would use your collective lives together as a a picture, a witness, a display of the beauty and the sufficiency of what it means to trust in Christ. So this morning, I want us to look at what it means to be a culture of earnest, serious, humble Christ followers or a culture of discipleship. Now, I have a list of six things. We're going to unpack these and embed them in this. So if you're a note taker, um, we'll have it up on the screen. Six things that I want us to peel back as a result of the doctrine and the truths that we peeled back last week, what it means to be a culture of discipleship. One is that we be a people who are passionate about and committed to gathering together to worship under the authority of God's word. That we be a people that, that gather together 
and prioritize life together under the authority of God's word. So it's not just by gathered worship. I'm not just talking about making church attendance a high priority, although I think that's important, and we'll get to that in a second. But embedded in that word, those words gathered worship, is that we are a people that prioritize and have as a rhythm of our life together as a local church, gathering under the authority of God's word. And Paul says here specifically to Titus that he should teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, what flows out of the teaching ministry of this local church in Crete and and now in Columbus and every other Bible-believing church should be sound, good doctrine. What is sound doctrine? Let me just give you a couple thoughts about what sound doctrine is. Sound doctrine is doctrine or truths. And by the way, like we say here often, don't be scared of the word doctrine, okay? You all have a doctrine. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Exhale. Doctrine is just a set of truths or assumptions upon which you view life, okay? And so you have a doctrine. Maybe, like I say often, maybe your doctrine is that doctrine isn't important. Well, that's your doctrine, and it's a terrible doctrine, but it's your doctrine, okay? And so, so this, this idea of the, what the Bible has to say to us, to reveal to us, is this idea of doctrine, the truths of the Scripture. So sound doctrine is doctrine that has the glory of God as the center, not how it can help us live more pragmatic, useful lives. Those things may flow from the centrality of the glory of God, but they're not primary, okay? So good doctrine starts with looking at what the Bible says about who God is and then the consequences of the nature and character and power and goodness and mercy of God. Sound doctrine is doctrine that is gospel-centered versus moralistic or pragmatic. What do I mean by that? It means that when we look at the Bible, we want to look at the Bible with an eye towards seeing how these truths that we're looking at, whatever it may be, whatever book in the Bible we're in, points towards or displays Jesus and his work on the cross, which is the message of the gospel. It's the message of the Bible. It's the point of the Bible. It's the point of the universe. As opposed to approaching the Bible with just kind of tidbits or like a roadmap for life or tips on how to have, you know, a, a better attitude or whatever. Again, those things may flow from good doctrine, but good doctrine primarily has God and his glory at the center And the apex of God's glory is what he has done in Christ to redeem a people for himself. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when Will Hawk was preaching from Luke 24, the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Will did a fantastic job just unpacking that chapter. If you missed that message, you can go to the internet and find it on our webpage. Uh, Really excellent. And did you notice there as Will was preaching through about how Jesus, when he was with these disciples, the New Testament had not been written yet. So Jesus has lived, he's died, he's risen from the grave, and now this is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to these disciples. And it says that he started with the law and the prophets, Jesus. That means the first five books of the 
Old Testament and the rest of the Old Testament, Moses, Genesis, he starts with Genesis and walks them through the rest of the Old Testament. And what? Telling them kind of stories about how you should be courageous when you face your giants? No. He starts with the law and the prophets and shows how all of them ultimately point to him. Right? And so good doctrine is looking at the entirety of the Bible, seeing the apex of the Bible as God's glory, and then the glory of God in the work of Jesus on the cross as the center. And then rightly applying that to our lives, rather than starting with personal application when we look at the Bible. So sound doctrine is absolutely essential when we gather together. We are a culture, a church, that wants to really ground ourselves on the centrality of the Word of God. And as we ground ourselves on the Word of God, the Holy Spirit attends, comes alongside of the Word of God and opens up our hearts to grow. And the Word of God rightly handled, when people approach it humbly, it just grows us. It, just, it must, it does, it does its work. It does what it's intended to do. Let me read just a, a verse or two out of 1 Timothy, another letter that Paul writes to a young pastor. Listen to this. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. We'll have it on the screen. You don't need to flip there. Keep your place in Titus. He says, command and teach these things. He's speaking of the word of God, sound doctrine, and everything that flows out of it. A, a, a glory of God-centered, gospel-centered view of the scriptures. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but... Set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Listen to verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Do you notice how much reading of Scripture we try and do when we gather together? We read it at the beginning. We read it at the middle. Then we open up the Bible and preach out of the Scriptures. And then we read the Scriptures at the end. That's not filler. We're not just coming up with stuff to do to get us to the next part. of. It's not transitions. It is... What we believe the Bible is telling us to do, that as we gather, we are centering ourselves not on trying to entertain people or perform or have specials, this, that, and the other. We are here to open up God's Word and as God's people sing songs to Jesus and open up God's Word, which points us to Jesus. And then we want to respond to His Word. So we are to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress, right? So he's writing to a young pastor here. You should know the lives of your shepherds. I'm getting off on a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think this is, this is pertinent, is that you should, Lord willing, see some progress in my life. Like I should hopefully not be you know, the same sort of state of sanctification that I was nine years ago when we started this church. Hopefully, I'm more mature. Hopefully, I'm a better preacher. Hopefully, I continue to improve. But don't let that be just like a spectacle. We all want to be growing in Christ, right? So we should all be growing and opening up our lives so that others may be encouraged by our progress. And sometimes, friends, progress is humble repentance. So when you mess it up, it's humbling yourselves and repenting and letting people see what it means to grow even as we fail and repent and, and are refreshed by the Lord. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, or another word for doctrine. 
persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So here's what I want you to see is, is we, when we gather, I want you to see the centrality of the word of God, and I want to develop in you as a congregation, and I, I think this is, has developed in this, I want us to have like this, this hunger for truth, like good truth, Christ-centered, glory of God-centered doctrine. And I want you to, even if it's subconsciously, I want you to crave that. I want that to be such an instinct in the life of our church that if after a couple weeks, if we got up and started doing sort of man-centered pragmatism and seven steps how to have a, you know, humana humana and blah, 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 and blah, you know, whatever, that you would somehow just start to, to have these hunger pains and you would either demand real food or you would go to some other church that, that, that is centered on Christ, right? I, I thought back to um, 20 years ago, in the spring of 1994, uh, I was in the final phase of ranger school at, back when we had four phases. I remember that, Chuck. I see Chuck Albertson here. He's the new sergeant major for the 75th Ranger Regiment. Just got back from deployment, and he went to ranger school back when they had four phases of ranger school. That's right. And um, I can remember I had passed all my patrols. It was about the last five days. I was sitting in some patrol base in Florida, and I started to write a grocery list for my mother-in-law-to-be. Jennifer and I were dating. And on one of my little eight-hour breaks, my future mother-in-law, she didn't know that she was going to be my mother-in-law at that point, but I did. Anyway, I, I knew that they were going to pick me up from ranger school graduation, and she was going to fix me this, like, southern feast, right? Where, I mean, they just, um, well, suffice it to say, my mother-in-law can absolutely throw down in the kitchen. Let's put it that way. And I was writing this list of the things that I was craving, and because I was like, I was so starved for nutrients, I was craving like broccoli and like okra and vegetables and it's stuff that I had never craved before in my life because my body needed good nutrition. And it's amazing when you're starved, the things that you will crave. My body needed good food. And I had this this hunger for it. Now, full disclosure, my parents picked me up and we drove all the way out to exit 12, which is where Jennifer's parents live for a little post-school uh, graduation lunch, and we stopped at a gas station on Macon Road, and I bought a 10-pack of Kit Kats and down that before we, um, before we had lunch. But, but the point is, is I want us to hunger. Like, I want you to just sort of have this subconscious, like, taste bud for for glory of God, gospel-centered doctrine. And I want you to just demand it of this church and demand it of yourselves. And I want you to have that type of bloodhound nose even as you open up the Bible so that your first instinct when you look at the Bible is not just a little nugget that can help you get through Tuesday, but how does this word reveal the glory of God and the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus? And then how does that flow down to me and put claims on my life because Jesus is my sovereign king? Oh, friends, let's, let's develop that type of nose as we gather together and as we prioritize worshiping together. And as we are a church that hungers for that, something beautiful happens here. You see, I think a lot of us probably grew up in churches where gathering together was just kind of a, a, a show or a production or some, kind of a social hour, right? 
And I think that rightly done when the Christian, when Christians, when an earnest, serious culture of discipleship church gathers together, something beautiful happens that even with hundreds of people in a room, we can grow together as we look at God's word. And this becomes like the primary starting point of discipleship for a Christian. And you know how sometimes people will, I think, unwisely pit discipleship versus evangelism, like a church is either good at, you know, helping Christians grow, or they're good at really being a witness to the lost, as if those two things are contrary to each other. Friends, I think that's a false paradigm. In fact, I think it's a, a, when you try and divide those two things up, I think you misunderstand both of them. What is evangelism? Evangelism is displaying to the world the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus and his finished work on the cross and lives that flow from it. And so we should not think that we need to dumb down doctrine and God's truth so that unbelievers or seekers can understand it. No, they don't need a dumbed down man-centered view of the Bible. They need to see Christians who are so in love with God's word and God's truth and God's work on the cross through Jesus that they are like people who are on fire that draws through the warmth and the beauty of their life. It draws people to say, whatever you have, I want. It'd be like, um, I heard this analogy uh, years ago from a young preacher that we like to listen to, Matt Chandler in Texas. Listen to him. He's a really helpful preacher of the Village Church, and he talked about, like, if you were wanting to commend marriage, you know, so if I were wanting to explain to you the benefits of marriage, um, how helpful would it be if I said, yes, well, my wife Jennifer and I have been married for 20 years now. I know it's 19 and a half. I'm just rounding it up. We've been married for 20 years now. And, you know, it's really beneficial. Um, we share responsibility in fixing meals. We get to uh, file joint taxes, and that's helpful in our tax return. And, um, you know, she helps put the kids to bed, or, to, to, to bed at night, and I help you know, earn the chemistry. Very, very, very useful. It really helps our lives, you know, work together. And so marriage has become really quite pragmatic, and I'm, I think I'm just, you know, I'm living a more productive life. And you'd be like, okay, yeah, okay, I, I, I guess I, I want to get married, yeah. Or contrast with like, oh, like, I love my wife, and even when we struggle, like repentance and joy that comes from it, and like, I, I want to serve her, and, and God is given her to me, and I, I want to I I be the husband that, that she needs, and I don't want to serve her. I want to lay down my life, and there's nothing more joyful on this earth, human relationship-wise, than giving yourself to another person. Now, now, which of those two would you be more inclined to say, I want that, right? And so we don't look at the Bible and dumb it down for the world and say, you know, this will help you control your anger better. That we look at the Bible and say, this is what it means to follow Jesus and a church that is absorbed and has a hunger and a taste for that type of God gospel centrality becomes a witness to an onlooking world. All right, I got five more points. I took way too long on number one. So here, <laughs> and we're going to baptize two people at the end of service here. So it's going to be beautiful. You're going to see the gospel displayed. So we're going to pick up the pace. Second aspect of a culture of discipleship is life in community or in smaller groups rather than a room with hundreds of people. 
in our context, we call it community groups. It can be done many different ways in different churches. So we're not saying that the way we do it is the, like the only way to do it. But it's the idea of Christians and people who are together in the life of a local church are not just seeing each other on, for a couple hours on Sunday in a room full of hundreds of people, but then are in relationship with smaller little pockets of that community and they're in relationship to serve one another. And we call this community groups. And we have many community groups that meet throughout the week in homes. There's a community group that meets at my house on Tuesday nights, and there are others, and we we love to be in relationship. And this is the place where we, as a church that are growing, learn to serve one another. So we decentralize care for one another. So it doesn't just depend on five or six or seven pastors or elders, but we, as we read the Bible, realize what the gospel calls us to, to care for one another and to lay down our lives. And we have in these informal, organic, in-the-home environments, we have these ready-made opportunities to use our gifts and to serve one another, and to not think about ourselves, but to think about other people. And what we do in our community groups is we write weekly just a little Bible study on the passage of Scripture that we're looking at, and seek to apply that Scripture as led by the community group leader, facilitating a discussion on the passage of Scripture that we've gone through the previous Sunday. But I think, when I think about community groups, and then I think about in the context of discipleship, I think really about this idea of yoking yourself, like hitching yourself to inconvenience. Now, let me explain this. Um, and by the way, if you're in my community group, and I see a bunch of you that are in my community group, I, let me preface this by saying you are not inconvenient. Uh, I've already blown it. You're like, yeah. I, I, I. But there's something about preferring one another. There's something about taking a night out of a busy schedule every week or every other week. There's something about humbling yourself and slowing down and sitting together around God's word and hearing other people's lives, bearing with other people, finding out what their needs are, becoming aware of them, and then like, oh, wow, I I gotta not just think about myself right now, and I have to like attach myself to other people in relationship. And what it does, it, it slows you down for your good. And, and part of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is not just accumulating good doctrine for yourself, but that good doctrine and that God-centered view of the world then has this strange, beautiful effect on you. It starts to cause you to look away from yourself to other people to find how you might encourage, bless, and help. And the community group comes, becomes kind of like a, a little ready-made place where people sit together and inconvenience themselves to learn about one another's needs and thereby become more like Jesus. Friends, that, that just, I, want you to, I want you to grab a hold of that, that, that part of being a disciple of Jesus, part of following Jesus in community is inconveniencing yourself for your good. So it means that you're going to sit in a room maybe with somebody who has a prayer request that goes on and on and on and on and on. Doesn't happen in my group. <laughs> Often. 
It means that you're going to sit in a living room at times or you're going to be in a relationship with somebody that you never would have been in fellowship otherwise than being in that group. It means you're going to be in a room with people from different ethnicities and different cultures and different understandings of the Bible. And at times, it's going to be inconvenient. And I want you to embrace, embrace. I want you to run towards. I want you to grab a hold of inconvenience because it is good for our soul. Enough of that one. Three, a culture of discipleship is then flowing out of Sunday morning Word-centered preaching is theological education, not just six or seven hundred in a room on Sunday or maybe in a living room, 10 to 15, but then looking at specific areas of doctrine and teaching from the scriptures and drilling down in them and the mechanism by which we do more intentional sort of, if you want to call it, kind of more classroom-like theological education is our Sunday morning AM classes that we have started this year and our midweek fellowships. And so three times a year, and we're going to get into this pattern of having like a, a, spr- a, a, a winter-spring a semester, a summer semester, and then a fall semester for our Sunday morning classes and our midweek fellowships on Wednesday. So in the spring, early, uh, late winter, we did Sunday morning classes and a midweek fellowship. We'll do it again this summer. Reynolds just talked to you about the two classes that we're going to have going on this July. We haven't advertised it yet, but I'll tell you now, this July on Wednesday nights, Wayne is going to be teaching a class in here on personal evangelism. And so we're, and we'll do it again in the fall, another round of Sunday morning classes, and then a midweek fellowship. And the point is, rather than just having kind of classes that are just kind of people that are in them forever and they just kind of maybe meander around and aren't necessarily tethered to learning and topic. We're gonna we're, we're drilling down and creating this culture where there are these environments built out for intentional theological education, looking at specific things, looking at good theology that comes from like Packer's book, Knowing God, or the person and work of Christ, personal evangelism on Wednesday nights. We want you to to avail yourself of these things. Of course, we're, we live busy lives and, and, and we realize stuff come, goes on in our lives. We're not gonna be able to make all of this, but avail yourself of it. Prioritize it as you are able and be a serious student of the Bible. Listen, I, we don't have this quote on the screen, but I read this earlier this week when I was reading a biography of Spurgeon and he said this, I would have every Christian to know all that he can know of revealed truth. Take care that you know what the Holy Spirit teaches. Do not give way to faint-hearted ignorance, lest you be great losers thereby. Friends, I think that phrase, faint-hearted ignorance, describes the vast majority of American Christianity. We're just kind of satisfied with, I went to church, what are you talking about? Couple weeks ago, I brought the donuts. Get off me, man. I'm doing stuff. <laughs> but, but we're just satisfied with like this faint-hearted ignorance. And we want to do, we want to push against that, that subconscious, weak Bible culture in our, in our city and in our culture. And we want to be as intentional as we can. And friends, that's a two-way street, right? 
right? You, you've got to have this hunger inside of you. So maybe the, the number one thing for you today is that the Holy Spirit is like hammering on you to develop in you this hunger for God's truth, right? Maybe that's the thing that you repent of and you pray for today. God, I have been a Christian that has subsided on, on spiritual Twinkies up to this point. And I need like vegetables and steak. And give me a hunger for that. Like even pray, like even pray that right now. Like God, I've been, eating, I've been eating Kit Kats for the past 15 or 20 years. And I need good stuff. Right? So it's a two-way street. We want to preach good truth. We want to have these classes. And then from that flows number four. Similar, studying the Bible together. Bible studies, whether in larger groups or just one-on-one, or people reading the Bible rightly on their own. We have Bible studies, and we, need, we want, of course, more of them in our church life. Maybe men getting together early uh, to study the Bible. Cecil Cheeves, this isn't necessarily a Bible study, but it's looking at a wonderful, uh, great book full of good doctrine, Pilgrim's Progress. It meets on Thursday mornings. It's a men's study of that historical, wonderful, good, good book, Pilgrim's Progress, full of good doctrine, studying that together. There's a few women's studies. We want more of these things. We want Christians getting together to study the Bible. If you uh, feel like maybe the Lord is giving you a desire to do that, come and talk to the pastors, and we'll help to encourage you and equip you. And we've compiled a wonderful list of resources that we think are good gospel-centered resources and books and studies that is not an exhaustive list. It's not like that's all that can be taught at Crosspoint, but it's a great list. I mean, it's a bunch of stuff that we've put together that is good, helpful, gospel-centered stuff that that really is sound doctrine. And we'd love for you, if you desire to teach a, a Bible study or just read a resource on your own to help you study the Bible together, that you, we would be a, a type of church that is intentional in doing that. We should be people that are absorbed with the Bible. We should, when, when they prick our skin, we should bleed Bible. And, and think of yourselves right now. Think of, like, even marking the date in your, in your Bible, right? Like May 18th, 2014, and be resolved to not be at the same place that you are with the Bible, like a week from now or a year from now, right? Put it in your phone. I know all of you are probably sitting there texting right now. Text yourself a note, May 18th, 2015, have I grown in an understanding of God's word and the claims that it has on my life as I look at the glory of God? Are you okay with being at the same place a year from now, a week from now, a month from now that you are today? Friends, maybe you need to, before you leave this room today, Repent and confess your spiritual apathy and go to God and say, God, give me a hunger for your word and its claims on my life. And then fifthly, again, very quickly, discipling relationships. We see this in this text that we looked at here. Did you see it? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. The implication there clearly is, is that they're to be good examples 
to the younger men. Older women, verse three, likewise, they're to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children. I think a mark of a culture of discipleship is not that we, we cordon off people by generation, you know? That's why our community groups are not, let's get all of the young married couples between the ages of 28 and 34 with elementary age children and put them in this room and you guys, you know, figure it out. And then all of you people that are empty nesters over here and all of the young infantry soldiers that are single, you're over here. And all of the humana humana over here and the people from California that are USC fans, you go over here and that would be the one group. That would just be me. I'd be by myself. <laughs> and <laughs> thank you, glory. And sometimes people come to the church and they'll say things like, what do you have for me? Like my demographic, my age group, my stage in life. And I understand that, you know, it's good to have affinity and connect with other people. I mean, I get that, right? Like Drew and Brenda Brenda Hale are a young couple in the military here, and they are from my hometown town of El Centro. And when they came here, they were like, people like me, they understood what a special quesadilla is, and they understood what true Mexican food is. And I had like this affinity with them, and I said, like, you, the three of us, you know what I'm talking about, Aurora, like real Mexican food, like, so we should start a community group on just people that understand true Mexican food, right? Right, amen. But then we got to push away from kind of our little stage of life or our little affinities and be in relationship with people that are older and people that are younger and people that are from different socioeconomic zones than we are, different regions, different life stages, different educational places. And so these discipling relationships are not built out upon like our affinities, but on how the generations should, as Psalm 145 says, commend God's work to one another. And so it is good, listen to me, young people, it is good for you to get off Facebook for half a second and go to lunch with a lady who's a grandmother who although her language and the way she kind of phrases things may be a little different, and you may have to sort through some of that stuff, it is good for you to go to lunch with her and hear her view of the world. She's got some calluses on her hands, and she's worn out some shoes caring for children and God's people. And you need to yoke yourself to inconvenience, say no to your preference, and saddle up next to an older person. And older people, you need to not be grumpy and suspicious of younger people. No, I didn't mean that to be funny. I don't want you guys to lose that. No, don't laugh. I'm serious. I say that because I'm getting grumpy. Like the older I get, I'm just getting mad at everybody. Turn the music down and be quiet. That's That's just my view of the world. If you're an older person, you need to... Not wait for younger people to come to you. They're insecure. They're knuckleheads. They don't know what to do. They look cool, but they're not. (laughs) Go to them and say, hey, whippersnapper, you look like, you know, you're in the army or you're a young couple or you got three or four kids hanging from your hip. Come over to lunch at my house. Right? Yoke yourself to inconvenience. And guess what? When they come over to your house, their kids are probably going to wreck your stuff. (laughs) Who cares? It's stuff. Some of our houses are too nice. They're too nice. They're so nice we can't have people over. Right? 
And we're, we make an idol out of cleanliness and stuff. And some of you, your, your house isn't, you're, you're on the other side of it. Your house isn't nice at all, but now you're insecure about it. And so you have all this spiritual wisdom and you won't invite anybody over because the thing that is keeping you from being a witness for the display of God's glory or encouraging a younger person is you're making an idol out of what you don't have. You need to repent of that right now. Who cares? Let's embrace the fact that all of us got junk in the back of our couches and Captain Crunch ground into our carpet. Who cares? There's a, there's a gospel to commend. There's knowledge to be passed down. There's people to be served. Let's put down this silly self-absorbed view of the world. And let's get into discipleship relationships. We try and do this as pastors to team people up with one another. Man, that's getting harder as we grow as a congregation. And so there's, I think, again, that's a two-way street, man. You know, if you're older and you've got some knowledge, man, be open to us encouraging you to, to latch yourself to somebody else. But don't wait. Like, don't wait on us because we just, we can't. You know, you've got you've to push through that awkwardness and just kind of have your head on a swivel and be in relationship and, and, and find somebody and be, don't be threatened by young people and don't be discouraged if they brush you off and you have four or five no's to your invitation before you get one yes. Just, just plow through that, dear saint. Plow through it. And then finally, sixthly, I don't even think that's a word. I just made it up. Sixthly. Somebody's texting me whether or not it is a word right now. Sixth, serve one another. And this just kind of like encapsulates this culture that pushes on us. So we're not people that when we get all of this good glory of God, gospel-centered truth, we don't just become like cul-de-sacs where we've spent 20 or 30 or 40 years listening to sermons and going to Bible studies and reading the Bible and, and really have no like, no like real life to really commend it. Like your, your life, there's nothing in your life that really, you could say I'm inconveniencing myself for the sake of the gospel, right? I mean, uh, can, I, can I push on that a little bit and say, yeah, my friend, don't, don't be that person. Don't be that southern Bible Belt Christian that spends decades going to church, hearing sermons, studying the Bible, and like you miss what Paul is saying here. He's saying to serve one another. Be a people that are zealous for good works, that, that push themselves outside of each other and then to just have their head on a swivel to yoke themselves to inconvenience and, and give their gifts and their time and their energy and their treasures away to the people of God that he's brought to sit in the chair right next to them. And then God uses that little community of people called the local church as they start to hear God's word, apply God's word, and inconvenience themselves for one another. He uses that as this irresistible picture of what it means to be a Christian. Oh, this is the effect that the gospel, the true gospel has on those people. Oh, I want that. That's what the world says. Listen to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Listen to these beautiful words. Let, I, I pray that this would be like the 
the, the description of the life of Crosspoint as a group of earnest Jesus followers seeking to encourage one another. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Listen to this outdo one another in showing honor. Can you imagine that? Like we have this competition not to gossip about each other or prop ourselves up over one another, but we are elbowing one another, trying to get to the front of the line so that we can serve everybody. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in prayer. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Continue or contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And that word hospitality in the original language of the Bible means that you love strangers. People not like you. Oh, let's be this type of culture that strives to live this way. Now, before we end, let's just reorient ourselves because we could say, yeah, yeah, Brad, I got you. I got you. This is good. This is good. No, this is good. This is good. Yeah, yeah. And then we can kind of run off on our own strength and try and, try and, try and live this way. But friends, that's not the gospel. The only hope that we have of even living in this way is to remember that we can only do this not by our strength, but by the grace of God, the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ. So friends, when you have a gospel-centered view of the Bible and life, and you know that there's nothing in you that can commend you to God or be of any value in this earth, but Jesus who is the only one that was good, God became man, laid down his perfect life on the cross, absorbed God's wrath for the punishment that should have been ours, defeated it, extinguished God's punishment, rose again in victory over death in the grave, and now gives life and gives his spirit and gives his righteousness to all those that will turn away from themselves and trust in him. And then by his righteousness, by his work, by his spirit, he gives us the gospel fuel for gospel living. So friends, let's not run off and say, oh, the pastor says we need to be a better church. No, Let's lean back on the gospel and say, because of this, we can live in beautiful joy this way. Listen to these words again from Titus, or from Paul. For the grace of God has appeared, verse 11, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. So it's like, Paul's saying that the first appearance of Jesus has saved us, and now we're leaning forward, waiting for the second appearance of Jesus, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14 is the gospel in a nutshell, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession, who then are zealous for good works, who want to live, who want to yoke themselves to inconvenience, who want to grow together in this way. Oh, friends, let's be this type of church. I just feel like I need to read a Spurgeon quote, so I'm going to do it. Listen to this. I think it encapsulates what we're saying. This is how grace works. 
And by the word grace, think of embedded in that as the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to reconcile a lost people to himself. This is how grace works in the life of a church. It enters the soul. It penetrates the heart. It saturates the conscience, abides in the memory, affects the affections, gives understanding to the understanding, and imparts real life to the heart, which is the seed of life. And then from that, it has innumerable effects on the life of a church. Friend, are you trusting in Christ? Do you know him? If that has become evident to you even in these past 45 minutes or so that you're not, friends, I'm not giving you a list of requirements. I'm saying turn away from trusting in yourself and trust in Jesus, who is the only one that can equip you to love him and to walk in joy and to have your sins forgiven and to be right before holy God and to live this beautifully satisfying way. Turn away from yourself. Say, say to God, I, Lord, I can't, I can't do it. I can't be made right in of myself, but I look to Jesus who did it for me and I turn away from trusting in myself and I trust in you alone for my right standing with you. Do that even now, friend. And secondly, Christian, if you've already done that, do you, like, do you have a taste, do you have a hunger for this type of living together? Oh, I pray that you do. I pray that I would have more of it, that we would have more of it. In just a moment, we're going to see two young men be baptized and see the gospel celebrated. Before I do that, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, as we come now to a time of response, to a time of seeing the gospel preached, as we see two brothers proclaim their salvation and the gospel through their baptism, Lord, I pray that it would stir our affections for Jesus that it would produce in us a longing to live together in a way that Titus 2 commends. And that we would be this beautiful, rugged, scrappy little group of pardoned rebels who live together for true joy, serving Jesus, living out the beautiful implications of what it means to trust in Christ together. And Lord, let us see that even displayed before us in these waters of baptism. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.